0: We want to stay uh, laser focused on job creation in America. That's the the challenge that the President gave us. Uh, We know that the private sector has to lead the way in job creation.
1: Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Today is Friday, February 25th. That was GE CEO Jeffrey Immelt, who's now also chairman of the White House Council on Jobs and Competitiveness that you heard at the top. Today on the podcast,
2: why everyone in Libya wears two coats to work and what that has to say about the prospects for Libyan democracy. It's coming up in a minute. But first, Jacob Goldstein,
3: can you give us our Planet Money indicator? Adam, Alex? Today's Planet Money indicator is $100. Nice round indicator. The price of oil in the U.S., it rose above $100 a barrel yesterday. It's fallen a little bit today, but it's still up in the high 90s, which
2: is about 10 bucks a barrel above where it was a month ago. And this, of course, is related somewhat to what's happening in in Libya. Now, we're going to spend the rest of the podcast talking about the situation in Libya. There's massive protests there. There's been a brutal response from Muammar Gaddafi. And we're going to be talking about all of that on the upcoming podcast. But for the purposes of of what you're talking about, Jacob, that's affecting the price of gas here, too, as well, right? Right. And a pretty straightforward
3: rule of thumb that applies now is when the price of oil goes up by 10 bucks a barrel, the price of gas goes up by about 25 cents. So people have to spend more money on gas and less money on everything else. That means we have slower economic growth. If oil prices stay up around where they are now, instead of economic growth of, say, 3% this year, we'd have economic growth of maybe 2.7%. Now, this isn't catastrophic. It's not enough on its own to send us back into a recession. But it is definitely bad. You know, it's the opposite of what we need right now. And if the price of oil goes even higher, we can expect to take an even bigger economic hit.
1: Thank you, Jacob. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks, guys. OK, so as we tape this, we're still not getting a lot of news out of Libya, but much of what we hear is troubling. There's still protesters from what we understand. The leader of Muammar Gaddafi is still responding brutally
4: Tonight, witnesses in Libya report a massacre, hundreds dead as the military opens fire on anti-government demonstrators attending a funeral for protesters killed the day before. A doctor described the scene to the BBC. What do you see? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. They are, they are firing the civilians here. They are crazy. They are going crazy here. Oh,
1: my God. Now, aside from being horrific, this crackdown in Libya raises a question. We've seen these protests in Algeria, in Egypt. We now see them in Yemen and Bahrain. And nowhere has the response been as violent as the one in Libya. So Why is that? Why is Libya responding so differently? Why is Muammar Gaddafi responding so much more violently than any of these other leaders? And that is the question on today's podcast. Why is Libya
2: behaving so differently? Why is it having so much more of a brutal crackdown than the other countries in the region? And we're going to talk to a couple of people about this. First... Jeff Porter. He is a political risk consultant who spent a lot of time in Libya and wrote his PhD thesis there.
1: In fact, we learned how well he knows Libya. Before we started the interview, I was making a silly joke about who I would bribe in Libya to set myself up with a big cell phone franchise. And he actually did have an answer for me.
0: No, no, there's a serious answer. Yeah, um, The person to call would have been Gaddafi's first son from his first marriage, Muhammad al-Qaddafi, um, who cornered the, the telecoms market. And he was the chairman of the, the PTT or the Post Tele- oh, really? Telecommunications and Telegraph. Um, and that was his role. And so if if you did want to lock on, you know, mobile phones, you would, would have contacted Mohammed. Wow. I'm not sure where Mohammed is
1: now. So Jeff told us that one of the reasons Libya's response has been so different from Egypt and other countries is Economic So you and Caitlin did this great podcast a couple of weeks ago about how the Egyptian military is not just in the military business they're in lots and lots of other businesses. They make a lot of money with factories they own that make bread or washing machines, bottling plants, bottling plants, they run some tourist resorts. So when they look at people protesting in the street. They're not just seeing protesters. They're seeing customers. And generally, businesses don't like to shoot their customers. No, they don't. In Libya, things are not that way. In Libya, they make money one way.
0: 81% of Libyan industrial activity is attributable to the oil sector to, to, or, or the hydrocarbon sector, oil and gas. Another 17% is the services sector. Now, when you refer to the services sector, most of that 17% is oil and gas services. Um, so the the pipeline construction or the port construction or petrochem facilities, etc. Um, so you have a again a very sort of monolithic. Ninety
1: eight percent is related to exactly. oil and gas.
0: Right, exactly. Wow. Um, you know the country can't survive without hydrocarbon revenue. The, the, Libya imports seventy five percent of its foodstuffs. Um, without oil revenue, it's it, 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 it's a non country
2: economists call Libya a rentier state, and that's using an old sort of technical use of the word rent. And the easiest way to describe what they mean by this is to compare Libya to the United States. So in the U.S., people do all sorts of things to make money. The government then taxes them. And so in an economic sense, you can sort of think of the government working for the people. The people make the money, pay the taxes, and then consume government services in exchange for those taxes. So you can sort of think of the fire department or the school system or whatever. In a rentier state like Libya... The money doesn't come from the people creating goods and services that other people want. It comes straight out of the ground. It comes from the oil and gas that's buried in the desert. The state then sells the oil, makes a lot of money, and keeps most of it. That's why they call it a rentier state. It's sort of like they're
1: collecting rent. If you look at Gaddafi, he's the landlord. He's collecting that rent. Every week, Libya earns around a billion dollars from selling oil to countries around the world. Qaddafi has control of that money. He can use some of it to buy guns and mercenaries to protect the oil fields and to keep the people suppressed. And then there's a lot left over, which he can spend pretty much however he wants. This is why economists talk about a resource curse. In countries with huge amounts of natural resources, you often see this, corrupt, despotic rulers. Think about Myanmar or Nigeria at various points in its history or Iraq under Saddam Hussein. Resource-rich leaders don't need the people out there earning money, paying taxes. They just need the people to be quiet, and the leaders just want to control the natural resources.
2: Compare that to countries like Egypt or Yemen or Syria. They have had corrupt and despotic leaders, but those leaders get whatever wealth and power they have by siphoning off the money that's earned by their citizens. So those leaders need their citizens to earn money, which gives the citizens at least a bit of power
1: in the whole dynamic. In Libya, Gaddafi really doesn't have to care at all what the people think or feel or do. He can do anything that comes to his mind, and he has. The hydrocarbon wealth has allowed Qaddafi to live in a bubble. Um, It's
0: allowed him to make horrendous decisions, to make just abysmally bad government decisions, leadership decisions, with with very few consequences for the viability of the state because he had this this big cushion of oil revenue. Qaddafi built something called the Great Man-Made River, um, which was a, a canal which tapped underground aquifers in the middle of the Sahara, deep in the south of the country. And then it, it pumped up the water from the underground aquifers and then sent it, to the, sent it to the Libya's urban centers along the coastline. Well, some fundamental miscalculations. One, he never built a roof over the great man-made river, so it's open air. So something like 70% of the water in the great man-made river evaporates crossing the desert before it actually reaches the urban centers. <laughs>
1: right. He didn't know the Sahara was a hot, dry place.
0: Or maybe he just didn't understand evaporation. I don't, right. I don't know.
1: Um, and I should say, just according to Wikipedia, the total cost is projected at more than $25 billion, which
0: right. is a and, lot. and I'm not sure if that's in today's dollars or not uh-huh. because it, it, it's, it was constructed in, in the 1980s and 90s. Um, and $25 billion in, in 1980 is considerably more than $25 billion today. Right.
1: But you could just – I mean it's laughable to think if President Obama said I want to tap water around Phoenix and right. transport it to, you know, to Kansas City, it will cost $25 billion right. and be a total – like obviously, in our system, seventy <laughs> oh, percent of the water won't get there. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: you know, in, in in another context, the population probably would have been hugely dissatisfied, um, would have risen up earlier. Um, there would have been other pressures that Gaddafi would have had to respond to. Um, the vested interest of stakeholders in a Libyan economy were it a real economy, but it's not a real economy; it's a monolithic
2: economy. So, for a minute, put yourself in Gaddafi's shoes. Here, you clearly really like power. You call yourself the king of Africa. And the one thing you're worried about is that someone will amass enough power to rival your authority. And so you have an active interest in making sure there's not many ways for regular people to get power or money. You want oil to be the only source of money. So if you see anyone with potential, you try and derail them. We talked to Mansour el Kikia. He's a Libyan who teaches political science and geography at the University of Texas in San Antonio.
4: And he said this actually happened to a relative of his. My nephew, Graduated from the University of Exeter in England, uh-huh. okay, and and he was brilliant. He became the first in, in in his class, and the the university where he was studying at in Benghazi, uh, I, because he was an exeter, then He came back to Benghazi, uh-huh. and the university, his teachers and the school, nominated him for for a scholarship to go and do his PhD at Oxford. Okay. Gaddafi said no. He was put in a cement, a cement factory. What <laughs> did he do in the cement factory? <laughs> My question. Exactly. What is in the I mean, cement factory? <laughs> okay. And does Nothing. he work he, or they, he just shows up and puts his coat he just, up? He just, he, just, he just shows up and then at the end of the month he gets his money and that's it?
1: And he reads books or whatever he does? He
4: reads, bo- he re- he reads books what, over there. I mean, they, they, that's what they do. They it, read books. It's a, I spent I
2: spent a year in in the former Soviet Union right before the right before the wall came down and everything changed there. And, it, and it, this this reminds me very much of that, where nobody, everybody had a job, but, but nobody no, no, no didn't work. do anything. No. And it's, it's a very you, you, weird I, feeling. It felt like when I was there, it felt like there's this it it, it it gives this strange attitude to everybody there, where where they all realize that that it's everything is fake that they're doing.
4: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Now, Khia's family is a bit of a special case. They were powerful leaders in an earlier time in Libya's history in the part of the country that's least loyal to Qaddafi. So Qaddafi might have paid special attention to them. But what we've heard from lots of Libyans is this sort of derailment happens everywhere, unlike other states where the government really wants the people to find ways to make money. Qaddafi works really, really hard to make sure that he is the only source of wealth. So Qaddafi nationalized all the industries. There's very little private ownership in Libya. He set up a not terribly well-functioning welfare state where he provides the food for the people. He provides the services, the basic services that they demand, like water and electricity and health care. And what this means is there's just not that many jobs outside of the government. For most people, there really
4: is just not much to do every day. There is no work in Libya. This, this is what a society that does not produce. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a rentier economy. It, the 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 wealth is mined, and and he and he it's, it's like a drip drip feed. He drips one drip at a time in people's mouths, but there is no work. There is no production. There's t- so t- what, t- do, people work, do, yeah, what do people do with their days? Yeah, what do people do? They don't. That's exactly it. I mean, here, listen to me. It's over close to between forty percent unemployment. People don't work, and people who do work don't work. They go to offices. They don't work.
1: Because there's no productive use of the economy. There's no
4: demand on them. Exactly. There's no productivity. What happens is most people, and this is, again, thanks to, 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 to Gaddafi, they take two jackets with them to work. One jacket they put on a hanger. And one jacket they wear so they can go and work somewhere else, either in a farm or do something, or a taxi or something, so they can get money. And and, and you you as a citizen come to get something done in the, in the governmental department, whatever it is. And you say, what, is this person here? Oh, yes, he's here. His coat is right there. You see? It's somewhere in the building. <laughs> and so you wait for five hours, never shows up. You know? and, this, and so you come the next day, and the same thing keeps on, on and on and on. But here's, here's the thing. Here's the other thing. Here's the funny thing. You know? It, the society works on friendship, on friends. For example, I want, I, I go to a bank, okay, and the first thing I do is I look up and see, do I know somebody here in the bank who can help me? Mm-hmm. Because if I don't know anybody in the bank, I, I, I can't get my anything done. <laughs> you're not gonna
2: get. You're <laughs> not to get any banking done that day. Any
4: banking done? No, 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 no. <laughs> banking done. <laughs>
2: So here we are, we have this rentier state, Gaddafi controls all the money, keeps all potential rivals as powerless as possible, and yet the protests continue.
4: <laughs>
2: Here's analyst Jeff Porter. You know,
0: what's been shocking, I think, to a lot of commentators and a lot of analysts of Libya, myself included, is I had anticipated that there would be a, there would be a popular protest in Benghazi, uh, Gaddafi would deploy his military, they would shoot a couple hundred protesters, and the protesters would then cower. And go back to their homes and and that would be that, but what 's been amazing and to their credit and the, is the willingness of this, the the Libyans to actually sacrifice themselves and to keep pushing on this uh, at this moment um, and it's just it, it 's been stunning to me that that Libyans are willing to stand in front of gaddafi 's guns and, and, and get shot and be killed and continue to try and push him from power and that 's that's been, that's been amazing and the the big question. For me, is whether Gaddafi recognizes that it's different this time.
2: Why do you think that's happening? Why, why is it different this time?
0: I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it it may simply be enough. Um, you know, not only is the the, the the longest ruling Middle Eastern leader at 42 years, with Fidel Castro's resignation, he's also the longest ruling living leader in the world at 42 years. He took over when he was 27. For for the last
2: 42 years, for all, for his almost his entire adult life, he's been the leader of Libya. Even if Gaddafi falls, there's danger. There's a reason it's called the resource curse. In a rentier economy, there's one big prize. So whoever takes Gaddafi's place if he goes down is facing the same incentives like Gaddafi. If they control the oil, they won't need the people. So any dictatorial tendencies that
1: the, a successor might have, they can thrive in the situation. Now, there are rentier states that have broken this curse, but there's not many. Norway always comes up. People talk about Botswana, which has a lot of diamond wealth. Some people talk about Louisiana and Alaska. Residents of those states can tell us if they have, in fact, broken the resource curse. And the model these successful states have is to find ways to take that resource wealth and divvy it up among the people. So the people have control of that money, and that creates a much healthier relationship between the citizens and their governmental leaders. Right. It's not concentrated in the hands of a few autocrats. So if they figure
2: out how to do that in Libya, a big if, then Jeff Porter says this rentier economy might actually work in Libya's favor give Libya an advantage that most post-dictatorship economies don't really enjoy. So if you think of most sort of popular revolutions, there's this huge expectation placed on the new government to really improve the lives of the people in material ways, to really fundamentally raise their standard of living. And a lot of times these expectations, the new
1: government just can't meet
2: because the society just doesn't have
1: the money. Yeah, we, we've spent a lot of time in a, in a perfect example in Haiti in the last year. You know, the Haitians overthrew a long-standing dictator, Jean Claude Duvalier, in 1986, and since then the country is so desperately poor that no leader has been able to show, "Hey, I'm going to make your life better." So we've seen several coups, depending on how you count, at least three. We've seen several governments collapse and we've seen major governance issues. Because in Haiti, it's a really long slog to get enough money to
2: sort of improve the lives of the people. It's just sort of like year after year of sustained growth that they would need.
1: But in Libya, if they get some halfway decent governance, they have the money to really make it work. One, one, one positive
0: aspect of all of this is that the hydrocarbon sector is actually run by technocrats, and they're reasonably competent at their jobs. So as long as they stay in the country, and as long as they are, the, the oil infrastructure is protected and is not destroyed, as Qaddafi has now threatened to do, it's possible that Libya will continue to pump oil. And that will, again, just like Gaddafi benefited from a a cushion of hydrocarbon revenue, the hydrocarbon revenue will give a new state the opportunity to, it'll give it some economic leeway, some fiscal leeway to explore new forms of government.
2: So what's happening in the rentier state of Libya is definitely attracting the attention of other rentier states in the region, most notably in Saudi Arabia, where the king there, King Abdullah, just this week announced he was making a, quote, Royal gift to his people $35 billion in increased health
1: and unemployment benefits. So he's gambling that if he spends a bit of the vast wealth he controls on the people, maybe he can pay them not to revolt. Right? Sort of like a a rentier bribe to keep people in their homes. Thank you for listening to today's Planet Money. You can please send us your thoughts and observations about rentier economies to planetmoney at npr.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. When I-